0: So if you're ready for a really detailed analysis of the New Testament, you've come to the right place. Welcome. Hi there, and welcome back. This is going to be for 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So the heading reads, Paul speaks of certain customs of hair and grooming. Heresies will arise which test and prove the faithful. Sacramental emblems are partaken in remembrance of the flesh and blood of Christ. Beware of partaking unworthily. Alrighty, verse 1. Be ye followers of me, even as I am also of Christ. Now I praise you, brethren, that ye remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. In other words, don't change the doctrines or the principles or the traditions or the practices or the policies. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Rodney Turner said, Obviously a wife's righteous submission to her husband should stem from her husband's righteous submission to Christ. When this occurs, a divine triangle exists with Christ at its apex. Husband and wife are one flesh with each other because they have become one flesh with Christ. This is the foundation of all eternal unions. Herbali said, I fear some husbands have interpreted erroneously the statement that the husband is to be the head of the house and that his wife is to obey the law of her husband. Brigham Young's instruction to husbands was this, Let the husband and father learn to bend his will to the will of his God, and then instruct his wives and children in this lesson of self-government by his example as well as by his precept. This is but another way of saying that the wife is to obey the law of her husband only as he obeys the laws of God. No woman is expected to follow her husband in disobedience to the commandments of the Lord. Verse 4. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. but every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered dishonoureth her head for that is even all one as if they if she were shaven for if the woman be not covered let her also be shorn but if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven let her be covered for a man indeed ought not to cover his head for as much as he is the image of god image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man." Okay, let's see if we can explain some of this here. As the woman Eve was created for the man, Adam was, and not the reverse, so women are subordinate to men and are subject to their control. Such is the practical rule that does, does and must exist between the sexes by virtue of the simple fact that there cannot be two equal heads. That was by Bruce R. McConkie. The marriage sanctioned by God provides men and women with the opportunity to fulfill their divine potentials. Neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. Husbands and wives are unique in some ways and free to develop their eternal gifts, yet as co-equals within the sight of their heavenly parents, they are one in the divine goals they pursue in their devotion to eternal principles and ordinances in their obedience to the lord and in their divine love for each other when a man and woman who have been sealed together in a temple and united spiritually mentally emotionally and physically taking full responsibility for nurturing each other they are truly married Together they strive to emulate the prototype of the heavenly home from which they came. The church teaches them to complement, support, and enrich one another. If a husband and wife are faithful to their temple marriage, they will continue as co creators in God's celestial kingdom through the eternities. That was by Daniel Ludlow. Verse 4 or verse 10 For this cause ought the woman to have a covered have a covering on her head because of the angels according to custom wearing a hat was a sign that the woman was in subjection to the man that was by Bruce R. McConkie. verse 11 nevertheless neither is the man without the woman neither the woman without the man in the Lord. Marion G. Romney said, "'Husbands and wives should never forget these basic truths. They should remember their relationship and the purpose of it. They should be one in harmony, respect, and mutual consideration. Neither should plan or follow an independent course of action. They should consult, pray, and decide together in the management of their homes and families. Husbands and wives should counsel with each other in kindness, love, patience, and understanding. Remember that neither the wife nor the husband is the slave of the other.' Husbands and wives are equal partners, particularly Latter-day Saint husbands and wives. They should so consider themselves and so treat each other in this life, and then they will do so throughout eternity. The woman is not inferior to the man. It is, of course, it is true, of course, that the man holds the priesthood and in the righteous exercise thereof presides in the home. This he is to do, however, in the spirit with which Christ presides over his church. <clears throat> Verse 12, For as the woman of the For as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman, but all things of God." As eternal life grows out of the continuation of the family unit in eternity and as a family unit consists of a husband and a wife, so in the Lord it takes a man and woman together to gain the glorious state of exaltation. Such is the whole object and end of the gospel and as such it forms a kind of degree of equality between the sexes. Still, however, leaving the man to preside over the woman as God presides over the man. Again, that was by Broussard Verse 13, Judge in yourselves, is it comely that a woman pray unto God uncovered? Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him? But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given her for a covering. In connection with these basic gospel principles, Paul comments on local customs and traditions. For instance, that a woman should have her hair covered when she prays or prophesies, lest she be as though her head were shaven which, according to local custom, would identify her as an adulteress. In the eternal sense, it is wholly immaterial whether a woman wears a hat or is bareheaded when she prays. In Paul's day, the bare head was irreverent. In ours, reverence and respect are shown by removing the hat. In other words, gospel principles are eternal, and it is, it is wise to adhere to the passing customs, which signify adherence to that course which adds to, rather than detracts from, the great and important revealed truths. And that was again by Elder McConkie. Verse 16, But if any man seemed to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. Even ancient people had controversy over hairstyles in potluck dinners as we do today. Paul addresses the problems of hairstyles first in this chapter. Apparently, some of the women were wearing their hair in such a way at church that it was causing a great disturbance. Paul uses several arguments to overcome such problem, some of which are certainly culturally based. Perhaps today we would not use the same cultural measuring stick to judge if someone had a disruptive hairstyle. Nevertheless, in that culture, the differences that were being manifested at church were sufficient to cause disturbance so that the work of the Lord was impeded. Just in case any one of us is wondering which types of hairstyles were so erroneous, let me explain. Apparently, it was not just the way the hair was styled that was the problem. Rather, it was the association those particular hairstyles had with prostitution and licentiousness. In the days of Paul, there was a Greek religion near Corinth that encouraged sexual liberty. The women who joined that religious movement and practiced the licentious behavior of, the, of that movement wore their hair in a distinct fashion. Apparently, some of the women of the, of the Corinthians church had similar hairstyles, which caused confusion and questioning among other members as to whether these Christian women were united to the licentious practices of a nearby Greek religion. So Paul addressed the issue by encouraging the members to not wear their hairstyles associated with perverse religious and with religions and beliefs. Anyway, that was by Taylor Halverson. I remember as a youth growing up in the 60s that uh, I liked to, lo- to let my hair grow out a little bit longer, kind of like... Uh some of the rock groups of the day and I remember my mother coming up to me one day and asking me why do you wear your hair so long and I just said cuz I like it that way and she goes okay so it's not because you're being rebellious and and uh being anti-establishment like the like some of the other kids and like the rock groups are and I said oh no not at all and she says okay that's fine then so uh anyway that's that was back that, that was my experience back in the day Verse seventeen Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not, that you come together not for the better, but for the worse. Paul then moved on in his epistle to address the confusion which reigned in the ward dinner parties at Corinth. Apparently many members would come to church early before meetings to eat dinner. The church meetings were likely held in the evening. Some would begin eating before others arrived for the meal, and others yet would come just for the church meetings and be hungry. As a result, hurt feelings, jealousies, anger, and division developed. Paul, using the symbol of the sacrament, taught the saints that they should be all, that they should all be alike in their common meals at church, just as all who are worthy can participate in the sacrament. He then urged the members to wait to eat together if they were going to have a ward dinner party or to have everyone eat at home before church meetings in order to avoid having some members satiated while others were hungry. That was by Taylor halverson verse uh, eighteen for first of all, when ye come together in the church. I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it, for there must be also divisions among you that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. Heresies are found in the church today, even as in the meridian of time. For instance, what of the views of some on revelation, on the age of the earth, on the theories of organic evolution, on the resurrection of the sons of perdition, on a second chance for salvation, on whether God is progressing in truth and knowledge, and so forth? The fact is that a major part of the testing process of mortality is to determine how much of the truth the saints will believe while they are walking by faith rather than by sight. And the more truths they accept, the clearer will be their views on spiritual matters, and the more incentive and determination they will have to work out their salvation and gain eternal glory hereafter. Heresies and false teachers are thus used in the testing processes of this mortal probation. Verse 20, when ye come together unto one place, is it not to eat the Lord's Supper, in other words the purpose of the sacrament meeting is to partake of the sacrament and renew our covenants not some other reason. Elder Holland said with so much so much with so very much at stake the sacrament should be taken more seriously than it sometimes is. It should be a powerful reverent reflective moment. It should encourage spiritual feelings and impressions. As such it should not be rushed. It is not something to get over so that the real purpose of a sacrament meeting can be pursued. This is the real purpose of the meeting. Verse twenty-one. But in eating, every one taketh before his own supper, and one is hungry, and another is drunken. What have ye not houses to eat and to drink in? Or despise ye the church of God and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not, for I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus the same night, in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had su- when he had supped, saying, The cup is the new testament in my blood. This do ye, or as oft as ye drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. In other words, the sacrament is the only ordinance we experience ourselves more than once. I think Elder Oaks once called it a continuous ordinance, whereas um, or a continual ordinance, something like that. We baptism and our temple endowment, so on, those are saving ordinances that we do once for ourselves, but the sacrament is a continuing ordinance. Verse 27, Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. This penalty applies only to those who partake of the sacrament in total and complete unworthiness and rebellion. It is only this class of... Of damned souls, upon whose heads or upon whose hands, in the full sense of the word, the blood of Christ is found. That was by Bruce R. McConkey. verse 28. But let a let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. Personal worthiness is as is an is an essential prerequisite in all gospel ordinances. Otherwise, the performances are not sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, thus gaining efficacy, virtue, and force for this life and for this life and for the life to come. Verse 29, for he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh condemnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. If any of the members are not in good standing, if they have in their hearts any feelings of hatred, envy, or sin of any kind, they should not partake of these emblems. If there are any differences or feelings existing between brethren, these differences should be adjusted before the guilty parties partake. Otherwise, they will eat and drink unworthily and bring upon them the condemnation spoken of by Paul. That was by Joseph Fielding Smith. Verse 30, For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. Note the JST change in uh, verse 20. Back in verse 20, when you come together into one place, it is, not, is it not to eat the Lord's Supper? This suggests that the major purpose of our gathering and sacrament meetings is to partake of the sacrament. These verses suggest three great purposes for the sacrament. The first is in verse 25, This do ye in remembrance of me. The sacrament is a memorial. The second is in verse 26, When ye partake, we show the Lord's death till he come. The sacrament is a testimonial. And the third is in verses 28 to 30, but let a man examine himself. The third, the sacrament is an examination. That was by Ted Gibbons. I like that. So the sacrament is both a memorial, a testimonial, and an examination. Verse 31, for if we would... If we would judge ourselves we should not be judged but when we are judged we are chastened in the lord of the lord that we should not be condemned with the world wherefore my brethren when ye come together to eat tarry one for another and if any man hunger let him eat at home that ye, ye come not together unto condemnation, and the rest will I set in order when I come. So remember that back in the day when uh, when Jesus instituted the sacrament, remember it was part of the Last Supper that they had. So a lot of people thought that the sacrament should be, should be held in conjunction with dinner. And so they would have war dinners uh, as part of their sacrament meetings. Uh, and that's why they mentioned that uh, some come hungry and some are full, and that's because they they eat too much. In fact, some were taking way too much bread so that there wasn't enough sacrament bread left for others. Anyway, that's what was going on back in the day. From the context of the text, it is apparent that the Corinthian saints ate much more than a bite-sized piece of bread and a teaspoon-sized sip of water in, con- in conjunction with the sacrament. Evidently, a large quantity of bread and wine was provided, and some members who had come to the meeting hungry would gorge themselves on the bread and wine. External history tells us that on occasion, full meals called feasts of charity were provided in, con- in conjunction with the sacrament. While this odd practice may be surprising at first, one must remember that the sacrament was originally instituted in association with the Passover feast. Hence, early Christians apparently had kept the practice of eating a full meal in conjunction with the sacrament. However, among the Corinthians, this had become a practical problem. Some were coming to meeting with the full expectation that they could fill up on the sacramental offering. They would eat of their heart's content, but not leave enough for the other members. Hence, one member would be left hungry, while another would be drunk with wine. Paul chastises the members for being inconsiderate and intemperate, saying, What, have ye not houses to eat and to drink in? He meant that the members should eat at home before coming to the meeting, declaring, If any man hunger, let him eat at home. So it's a good thing we don't have that same problem uh, in our day. Anyway, that's the end of the chapter, and we'll see you next time. Bye.